Hello and welcome to the Modern Poetry Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Caitlin Peartree for another discussion in our series of Wallace Stevens poems. What we will be discussing today is Man Carrying Thing, which I have already alluded to in one of our previous conversations because it has an extraordinarily Stevensian, astute phrase. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. You have to be able to understand the poem, but you have to be able to strive to understand it. It must resist in its effort to guide you to understanding. You can't just have it the easy way. Caitlin, thank you for joining me again. Thank you for having me. Let's take our audience through this very unusual, very clever poem. Yes. Man-carrying thing. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Illustration. A brune figure in winter evening resists identity. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. Accept them, then, as secondary, parts not quite perceived of the obvious whole. Uncertain particles of the certain solid, the primary free from doubt. Things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night, out of a storm of secondary things, a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. We must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. This is from one of the late volumes of Stephen's poetry, Parts of the World, and it again has this strange quality that it seems both to describe a scene you should try to experience, think your way through, and at the same time, a painting you might find in a gallery. Man-carrying thing. Mm-hmm. It is as obscure and abstract as that. But it also has a strange grammatical structure, aside from the unusual uh, distich, each seven stanzas, two lines each. It is also riddled with this parenthesis in the middle of the poem, and we've already seen this introduction, the first stanza, that complicates the structure a lot. And in our discussions, we have stumbled over a way of trying to think through this that starts from what is most obvious or first comes to sight. If you were to see that painting in a gallery, what would you see there? Or if this were a description of something that happened one evening, as the poem tells you, what would that be? We will try to discuss it in the following order. First, we will give you the scene he sets for us. Then we will get to the parenthesis he introduces into the middle of it. And last, the introduction itself. Yes, I think that's probably the best way to think our way through this. I know I was trying to take it stanza by stanza and found that quite difficult. So I think this is a better way to approach this poem. So shall I begin with the scene that he sets? All right. Yes, please. A brune figure in winter evening resists identity. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. Accept them then as secondary. A horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. We must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. So you get the scene you might get in a painting here, and you can understand it, but it's somehow insufficient. You sense the leap from the thing that he tells you about. One evening, you saw a brune figure carrying something. 
you couldn't tell the details, but you have a power in your soul that allows you to recognize the shape of a human being. There's a man, and he's carrying a thing. Whatever he is carrying, by definition, has to be a thing. You don't know more. All you can sense is this outline. That's some kind of perplexity you have to live with. You can recognize that it's a man, but it's not a man you can recognize. You don't know anything about him, except that he's dark, there's a brune figure, and that he's carrying something. There's more silhouette than man at this point. But the leap from that to a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. How did we get to that? Yes. That is what will take us to our parenthesis, our attempt to explain this experience, this sentiment. That you recognize something and, and you recognize that you don't recognize that much. And that sends you into this unpleasant mood. There's a very unpleasant realization built on resistance or the resistance that the world opposes to your intellect. You see, it's not just poetry that opposes the intellect. The world does too. It's a winter evening and you see a brune figure that's dark and dark and dark. You're barely seeing something, but your intellect assures you that's a human being. Mm -hmm. But it resists identity. It's not the same as something else. Therefore, not quite itself. Here, Stephen suggests that all knowledge is recognition. Whenever you say, I know that, you mean that it suddenly makes sense, that it comports, as it were, with everything else. For you to see a man, that a man is a man, you'd have to recognize him. There's no real way to say, when did you learn to recognize a man, or as it were, what was the first man you learned about? Or how? You don't know, but you have all these images in your mind. You can recognize all sorts of beings and all sorts of things. And the ability to recognize them is based on something inside of you that corresponds to a variety of particular instances. You can recognize a brune figure, but any other figure you would recognize just as easily. That's some part of the powers of the soul that we don't quite know how we have acquired, but we always use them. But in a situation like this, when you can't make out the face, the look, the something more, all of a sudden, maybe your ability to recognize man is telling you something that you don't want to know. And for some reason, if you look at this, you can't just let it go. If this were happening in the street, you'd just let it go. Yeah, I didn't make out his features, doesn't matter. It's not a crime scene, there won't be a police officer asking you to give a description. It doesn't matter if you can tell the features of the brune figure, if you can make a portrait of the person. But for some reason, it matters to him that you can't really tell the features of this person and maybe there's any number of other persons whose features you couldn't really tell. Can you really tell they're human? Do you really know what it is to be human? So in his perplexity, he reaches for the next thing, the only other thing he can tell. The figure is carrying something but he can no more make out the thing than the person. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. You think it's your eyes, you're looking at it, but it's not your eyes. He's trying to say that you're desperately trying to make sense of it so that the world makes sense. If weird things start appearing, it's harder to believe that reality is real. And so he reaches for the thing that the man carries. If you can figure out what that is, maybe you can figure out the man. You can think of <laughs> painting and iconography. You see somebody represented with a sword, you know something about the person. You see somebody with a briefcase, you know something about the person in another way. We try to figure things out in that way, that maybe things suggest 
beings or types of human beings. Mm-hmm. Such and such a person goes with such and such a thing. As though that would eliminate this deep mystery of individuality that might end up being crucial to being human. And so he says, well, you have to reconcile yourself to this perplexity. Just let it go. Accept them then as secondary, a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. Secondary as opposed to primary, but secondary also in this other sense, you know. The primary apparently is not a horror, but the secondary might be. The secondary is all the details. And it is because he can't fill in all the details that these thoughts come up. And it turns out that you can't quite let go. You should just let it go. It just it doesn't matter. It's just a person like any other person, a man like any other man, whatever that might mean. But he can't. There is a certain obsession with identifying that such and such a man is who he is, that you can tell who he is, and if you were to see him another time, you could recognize. That's so important, apparently, that it leads to this conclusion. We must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. It is a great struggle. It is a deep and dangerous thing, and it seems to involve a sort of suffering and maybe discipline. Both are implied in endure. And it suggests something further, that we're not in control of our thoughts. We cannot order them to stop. If this catches your fancy, if, if you all of a sudden see the riddle of human individuality and the riddle of human identity, being human in this inability to recognize something, if that perplexity takes a hold of you, it mightn't go away so easily. Although he says, accept them then as secondary, all these other things you can't quite make out, then he says there's another way. You could, if you had the discipline and if you underwent this experience, which is not going to be pleasant, you could work your way to an insight. There would be the bright obvious that stands motionless in cold. It would seem that this is what we want being to be, what it is. It should be it itself. It should be bright, obvious and motionless, so to speak. If you apprehend it, if you seize it by your mind, it's there. But he seems to suggest that that is far more difficult than we think. We start from something that is simply part of our nature, in our souls a power to make images and recognize the beings to which they correspond. We recognize people all the time. But of course this includes a certain sort of trap. We all know what it means to be human. But then, you know, there's man and woman. There's adult and child. There are infinite individualities. We all think we're human, but none of us are satisfied to be simply called human. For example, we'd like to be recognized by people we recognize, and to be recognized by our names, to be remembered, to have all these particularities, not the category, define us. We want to assert ourselves. Yes, and it seems like this is such an important part of us that we can be troubled and perplexed when we can't recognize others. There's a dark, strange figure... This could be taken in a whole different and far more ominous way. But mm-hmm. yeah. then what is he bringing? You know, it might as well be the Grim Ripper with his scythe. <laughs> you don't <laughs> or know. Or maybe. So there is this ominous undertone, but you don't know because it starts from a basic failure of a basic function. The truth is that it happens all the time that we don't quite notice, that we don't quite see, that we can't quite make out. But it also happens most of the time that we let it go, move on with our lives. 
but in some strange moments when you're not moving on with your life, when you're not actually involved in anything, all this other stuff, potentiality shows up. You're seized with this need to make sense of whatever it is there. And of course, in the poem, you don't find out who this person was or what he was carrying, but you do find out certain somethings about the character of your knowledge and perception and how you think about being. And so, in the middle of the poem, he makes this parenthesis that turns out to be about the way we are as human beings. What is the character of our knowing and thinking about things? Yes. He breaks up his description of the image writing parts not quite perceived of the obvious whole uncertain particles of the certain solid the primary free from doubt things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night out of a storm of secondary things so this would seem to recall kant kant said that we have a transcendental a perception a power of our interiority to organize things into wholes that is to say that the manifold of sensation is ordered so that we can recognize where a being starts and where it stops how shapes and colors and sounds and what have you are arranged into beings Without it, you would be exposed to this storm of secondary things. All the details, all the particulars, without being able to understand them at all, you'd be hallucinating without any ability to form shapes to understand and recognize. Mm -hmm. Everything would be a dream, if not a nightmare. Yes. Lucidity, wakefulness, is an ability to see things as they are or to see what appears to you at least. Mm -hmm. And possibly you could lose that. And this is what he's referring to. There is a a certain solid, but it has uncertain particles. Well, how solid is solid if it has uncertain particles? There's an obvious hole whose parts aren't all that obvious. Well, how obvious is it really? But of course, this is literally true of our situation. It's like the assurances we have at once that our science tells us so much about the universe, and it also tells us that the vast majority of matter is simply undetectable. You would think that there's a tension in between those forms of certainty. And of course, it is so with everything else. We have perhaps knowledge at an expert level of something, but most other things we just take on faith. We have no way to verify them for ourselves. And so we seem to believe that you can have expert knowledge of a part without having expert knowledge of every part or of the whole. In short, these experiences of perplexity seem to throw the whole structure of thinking and of our certainty that we're human beings into a crisis. We don't know how the parts relate to the whole anymore. We do not know anymore how the particles add up to a solid. That robs us of this ability to experience the primary free from doubt. The thing itself, that dog, maybe you can't quite make out, is that dog a Labrador or a Golden Retriever? Well, you know it's a dog. Mm -hmm. But what if the details start shifting a little and you're not quite sure it's a dog anymore? Could be a wolf. Yeah, who knows? Exactly. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden your ability to recognize reveals itself as a reassurance. It's what keeps you comfortable and calm. What if you stop being able to recognize things? Then you're not going to be calm and comfortable because you might not be safe. Because you might not be yourself. 
to be who we are is always to know how to deal with the world in the way we usually do. But in moments of crisis, something is revealed about us. That the way we think about the world, the way we think we have grasped the articulation of whole and parts, is very, very questionable. But the character of that questioning is, as he says, like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night. That perplexity is actually just the beginning of something terrible. It is not itself the storm. Much worse is coming. And so he suggests that if we really want self-knowledge, if we really want to go from a common experience like you're looking out one evening and you see a person and you can't quite make out what you're seeing. If you want to think from that to how serious are our categories by which we understand the world, group beings, relate them, and so forth. If you want to think that through, if you want to be a philosopher, if you want to articulate the riddle of being, this is going to be terrifying. It will be an ordeal. That's not an usual subject of poetry, but somehow it seems home for Wallace Stevens. Yeah. And this brings us to this third part of the poem, the introduction. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Illustration. He'll give us an example of what he means, and it turns out that the example doesn't illustrate anything. Luster means the shine that comes on you after you clean yourself up. But this doesn't illustrate anything. The example is way more obscure than the statement. This is part of Wallace Stevens' irony. It's, uh, if you tell somebody the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully, he'll make his own opinion of what that means. If you read him the poem, he might not know that it's an illustration of that statement. <laughs> that, first of all, shows you what he means about the complicated character of understanding. To illustrate the resistance that poetry opposes to intelligence, he has to reproduce the perplexity. There's no way to talk about perplexity. You can only induce it. Mm, it has to be experienced. Exactly. And of course, that's a very important part of this difference between man, the category, and man, the person, you, Caitlin, me. You couldn't deduce yourself from the category any more than you could deduce me. You have to meet people. You have to experience who somebody is to know them. There's no substitute for experience. This is how the slippage between the primary or category or abstraction and the secondary, the details, the particulars that make up a person. Mm -hmm. The things you would say to somebody if you were to describe somebody the age, the figure, the color of eyes or hair, distinctive features, all these details, these particulars, they're the secondary. And so you have this sense of eternity with the category, which is just man as such, and this sense of time and even history with particular human beings of whom you have to have the experience if you are to know anything about them. Okay. There's no avoiding the experience of people or the perplexity of not recognizing them. It is the fact that we depend on time to know people that makes us so perplexed when we deal with strangers, let's say. People who are only people in the abstract sense that we can recognize them as people. But you know who they are? As in the phrase, I don't know you from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so the them then, when he says accept them then as secondary, we are supposed to accept as secondary 
the particular identity of the man and the particular identity of the thing he's carrying. Yeah, that's what the, that was exactly to. right. You'd have to leave aside certain things as secondary. What are the things you leave aside? Everything that is particular about that person. Mm-hmm. And of course, we do that all day, every day. If you walk around the city, you're not going to pay attention to each and every person. Maybe you're going to recognize them the next time. Maybe you won't. You just go by. But sometimes it triggers this sort of existential crisis because you're wondering how far are you really dependent on your experience and how far are you neglectful of that dependence and instead think yourself a kind of master of it through your intellect. We think we are masters of our thoughts, not that we have to endure them. But of course, experience can teach us otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so we see why poetry has to be what it is. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully because our experience has the same character. Poetry is merely our experience made sense of. But it is not the executive summary of experience. It is not the bullet point list of experience. It's not human being how to the guide. It is this effort to think through perplexity, to learn some things about how human understanding even works and what the problems with it even are that begins to answer to the anxiety which we might feel meeting a dark stranger with something in his hands. He doesn't mythologize this dark figure. He doesn't tell a story about it. He instead thinks, well, you could acquire self-knowledge instead, but it will be an ordeal. Mm-hmm. I like how he leaves it. As you say, he doesn't tell us stories, but the potential for stories is there. Yes. And I love that image of being, so you're, um, except them then, as the uncertain particles, like things floating, things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow at but it, it's not a gently falling snow, it's part of a storm. So it's, I love that image of you being battered by all of these potentialities of all these secondary things, of all the possibilities of what yes. this man-carrying thing, all the possibilities that that ambiguous image brings with it. And you see here, he does have recourse to a likeness, to an imitation, to a mere image as opposed to a thing. It's a poetic image, and it has this strange character that it starts like the first hundred flakes of snow. That's great. Out of a storm, we must endure all night. Yeah. That's terrible. You're like, oh, it's a gently falling snow. What a lovely, what a lovely image. And then out of a storm, we must endure all night. And nope, nope, never mind. (laughs) I'll stay inside. Thanks. Yes. So that is the storm of secondary things. It's an experience of chaos. Mm-hmm. Chaos is you not recognizing the beings that they are. Mm-hmm. Chaos is the possibility that beings aren't really what they are. They just seem that way now, and later they'll seem another way. Who knows? It is mm-hmm. unpredictability, it is disorder. All there is by way of reassurance and a certain kind of providence in the sense that man and world have a certain fit that rationality and experience and the phenomena are to some extent commensurate is this sense that there's a way forward through this, there's a way of grasping more, there's a way of describing the predicament. We're not helpless. And because we are not helpless, we are not hopeless. Well, Caitlin, I think we can conclude here. Thank you again for joining me, and let's try and find more Wallace Stevens poems.
Yes, yes, please. This is one that you brought to my attention, and um, I hadn't encountered it before. So thank you very much for both bringing it to my attention and for giving me some things to think about as I continue to think through it on my own. You're quite welcome. It's always a pleasure, Caitlin. Let's do this again. Yes, please. Bye-bye. Bye.